Welcome to the Mindful Mutiny Podcast. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, therapist, CEO, and high-level coach. At Mindful Mutiny, we thoughtfully rebel against anything that stands between you and achieving your highest potential. We have a guest today that is phenomenal, somebody that I have known for several decades. This is Cassandra Vitakam uh, Mitchell. Cassandra, thank you so much for being on the Mindful Mutiny Podcast. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Super excited. With a wealth of experience spanning from educating young adults to retirees, Cassandra Vitaka Mitchell, a social scientist with degrees from Stanford University, has crafted a success formula applicable to various life aspects. After over a decade as a financial advisor, she transitioned into being a speaker, author, and coach dedicated to spreading the happiness formula. In 2021, she founded Healthy Treats for You, a company with a mission to increase the accessibility of nutritious snacks. Cassandra actively engages in philanthropy, mentors women nationwide, and balances her life with yoga, Hebrew and Torah studies, and nature walks. So Cassandra, thank you so much for being on the Mindful Mutiny podcast. We've got a lot to talk about, and I'm super excited to have you here. And your shirt matches my wall. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, Cassandra, we we became acquainted very early in life because uh, Cassandra was one of my high school teachers, uh, a social studies teacher at Homestead High School in Cupertino, California. How did you end up doing that? Uh, because in first grade, believe it or not, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I... And I, I still say that for most people, I tell them it's it's just easier to say I'm a teacher because it's really what I am. I get information and I give it to other people. That's essentially everything I've done my whole life has been get information and give it to other people. So I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I specifically, the vision was I would start in the world of education and then move into sort of political, the world of politics. I did it at DC. I'd oversee the nation's educational system. This was kind of the, the big vision, right? The big, hairy, BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, so that's how I ended up in education. I mean, I went to Stanford. Actually, had a different vision by the time I got to Stanford. By the time I went through high school, the vision had changed. And then when I got to college, it went back to what I had when I was in first grade. So that's how I ended up there. Yes, when I was in the first grade, I wanted to be an actual fire truck. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure how that was going to happen, but that was kind of my life goal. And so, you know, at least you were going to use your mind. Uh, so uh, you, uh, you end, where did you grow up? So I grew up in a city called Covina. It's about uh, 20 miles, is that correct? Uh, of east of LA. Uh, so the 10, 210 freeways, if people know the freeways in the LA system, uh, there's a lot more there now, but in any case, city called Covina, it was a small town at the time, uh, about 40,000 people at the time, which is actually quite large. I live in a town half that size currently. And um, yeah, so small town, I guess, but, you know, L.A. Basin. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so what was it that kind of drove you? You went to Stanford University. What brought you there? What were your ideas at the time? What did you study? What was your focus? Yeah. Uh, so. I went to Stanford because they gave me the most money. <laughs> uh, right. So I was a scholarship kid. Was uh, So back up a little bit. I was raised with a single mom. My dad and mom got married, you know, in the 60s. Um, 
by the time I was born in 69, I don't, I'm not even sure if I was a year old by the time they got divorced. My father was around. He stuck around for a few years. Uh, my parents were uh, alcoholics, drug mm. addicts, that kind of lifestyle. Um, hard workers, <laughs> extremely hard workers, classic yeah. kind of what I call functional alcoholics. You know, this is what yeah. we, a lot of people are that. Um, but they were also very violent with each other. And so I grew up in a very, when they were together, they were very volatile together, like beat the crap out of each other, volatile, um, blood on the walls, cops coming through the house, taking mm -hmm. my dad to jail, kind of volatile, <laughs> um, not funny, not funny by any means, but so that certainly formed early years. That was like the first five years of my life. And then my father moved back to Illinois and remarried, et cetera. So I say that because you're, you're um, five years, you're five years old and you're listening to all of this from oh, your bedroom. Oh, watching it. Oh yeah. It was, it was, it was all, I mean, it's interesting. I did a, I had an executive, my, my executive coach when I, I got a, in any case, long story short, I had an executive coach when I transitioned from corporate to being an entrepreneur. And that's one of the exercises he had me do was to, to take every year of my life, you know, zero to one, one to two, every year of my life as best I could. I mean, I don't know if you know, zero to one, but, and write one main experience, one main memory of that year. And it was interesting because those first five, six years, it was, and, and then to put it on a scale like zero to 30, and I think zero to 30, the negative or something, or something like that. And, and, and those first five years were all negative. I mean, it mm. was ugly. And then it took until about age of 10 when I finally started getting some pluses um, mm -hmm. in terms of my life. I mean, it was very, and because it was just so volatile. So even when my father left, he just never knew what was going to happen. I had drug addicts and alcoholics in my whole family. And so I remember begging my family, can we please just not drink this holiday? Is it possible yeah. not to drink? Yeah. Um, yeah. So a lot of, a lot of, uh, just discomfort, a lot of insecurity with regard to a family unit, uh, certainly with regard to marriage, because again, my parents had gotten divorced and then I saw this dysfunction within my family unit, uh, you know, extended family members. And then, so, so that formed a lot of what, and it's also the seventies, right? It's the seventies. And so you know, there's still very much the the feminist movement. And my mom was definitely a feminist, a kind of a, a man hater, almost feminist. And she'd apologize for that. <laughs> She's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so negative. I don't want you to have a bad attitude towards men. Um, but I know you're probably going to because I'm your mom and I say all this stuff. And so she was at least cognizant and able to articulate that. Um, but she was trying to help me out. And, and it's interesting. In hindsight, I recognize she was saying these things, but this is what you're going to walk into as a woman when you walk into sort of society and business. Um, so get ready, you know, be on your guard and, you know, and, and trying to say, don't, don't hate them though. Right. You know? And so it was, um, she was trying to be, you know, and, and one of the things she always said is don't you dare ever take a dime from a man, make your own money. Don't ever let him pay for anything. And so I, I didn't, I was really, I was a great person to go on a date with because I always went Dutch. <laughs> it took me a long time to let a man pay for me. Mm -hmm. um, a lot. In fact, my husband, who I'm currently married to for 10 years now, he said, when I told him the story about the fact that I never let a man pay, he's like, you always let me pay. But you made me pay for everything. Man, you I got like, the raw yes, end of I that stick, didn't you? I changed my mind. I figured <laughs> it out. 
<laughs> so any case, a lot of stuff there, but I, so that, that formed a lot of the background of my thinking, right? Like, and so I was single mom. I had two older brothers. Um, by the time I got to school, one of the reasons why life started turning around for me was because I was a smart kid. I mean, I was one of these genius kids, right? And so by the time I was, I guess in fourth grade, well, I actually starting in first grade, well, starting in first grade, they started putting me into special, California at the time had a lot of money in its educational system. And they had these great programs for kids. And so I was one of those kids that would constantly take out a class and put in these special kind of programs and send to special camps and stuff. And it wasn't money we had, it was just the, you know, taxpayers putting their money into sort of cultivating kids. Yeah. And I was one of those kids that kept getting taken out because I was a smart kid. By the time I got to fifth grade, they actually sent me to a school for mentally gifted minds. Mm. It was about, so I was 10, 11 years old. And it was that point in time recognizing that I came at the school with these mentally gifted minds. So I'm a genius kid. And that's like, oh, wait a minute. This is a, you can do something with this. Like this is a real possibility to like change your life because you're smart, right? That's what I thought. Like it mattered that you're smart. It does matter, but it's not everything. <laughs> um, and so that's what put me on the course to Stanford. So by the time I got to high school, so many of my thoughts were, I want to change the world. A lot of what I had growing up, just naturally, even I think regardless of the family dynamic, I think I came out of the womb with what I would call the savior complex. And I call it a savior complex, which is usually like a bad statement, but it's the savior heart. It's the servant's heart. I really wanted to help people improve their lives. I I saw injustices and I would articulate those and I was incredibly verbal. Um, so it would freak adults out because they would engage in conversations with me. And all of a sudden they'd be like, whoa, 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 how old are you little girl? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm 10 or I'm five. And they're like, what are you having these conversations with me? How do you know all these words? Right. Um, so I, I was interested in helping people improve their life. I say that because by the time I got to Stanford it was the cold war. Well, before I even got to Stanford, been thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. It was the Cold War. Um, and I didn't want the world to blow itself up. <laughs> I didn't want people to, to hate people when you didn't even know them. And we were supposed to hate all these Russians and all these people in the Soviet Union and, and all these other people in other countries. I never understood that. I'm like, I don't even know them. How can I hate them? Um even if they want to kill us, I don't know, maybe does all, do all of them want to kill us? Really? Is that true? Um, any case, so I went to Stanford with the thought process or went to college with the thought process that I would go into international relations. Um, I was going to study Russian because I was going to need to go to the Soviet Union and help end the Cold War. So that's what my thought process going to college. So when I applied to college, I applied to Stanford, USC, and Yale. I applied to USC because my brother went there. I applied to Yale because they recruited me and I applied to Stanford because a teacher gave me the application. It was the only schools I applied to. I got into all of them and Stanford gave me the most money. Hence, we go to Stanford. Um, so that's, yeah, long story, but that's how I got there. Yeah, that it's a, it's a wonderful story there because you're going from this, this childhood that often creates like anxiety and fear and nightmares and trauma. And I'm sure that all of that applies here. Absolutely. 
you, you know, and and you have these unique gifts that somewhere along the way somebody noticed and that you began at a certain point to start to believe in yourself and that that people were starting to foster and that you mm-hmm. you people were noting that you there was something different about the way that you you thought mm-hmm. and so you had people around you i assume that your mother as well that wanted the best for you and were uh, trying to get you into the right place the right places out of a really tough situation was it a difficult transition for you? And I don't even know what I'm talking about here to go from how you grew up into being around like Stanford-y type people. I mean, what was that like? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think it's beautiful how you you do know you did note that there were a lot of people. There's this concept of a self-made man, right? Which is a bullshit statement. Nobody is self-made. Nobody. You do not do life alone. You're not a maverick. <laughs> You're not out there. And actually, if you if you hold on to that idea too much, you'll find yourself on an island by yourself, very lonely and in pain. You do not do life alone. There's always somebody helping you along the way, sort of shepherding you. Um, these angels unawares have yeah. been part of your life, right? When you get older, you start to sort of see them. And, and there might be some time, I'll tell you some stories about going back to my angels unawares yeah. and how beautiful that process was to explore that, right? With any case, people who were part yeah. of my life growing up. So yes, always people helping along the way, shepherding along the way. And so um, the the biggest part, so some of the challenges with going to a place like Stanford for a scholarship kid 60% of the Stanford students paid for it by themselves. 60%. Now, at the time I went to Stanford, the college education at the time uh, I was about 25. No, is that am I correct? Oh, God, I should know this number. I feel like it was maybe $25,000, $30,000 a year at the time. But that doesn't sound like enough. All I know now, I think now it's like 60 or 70 or something, right? Am I right? Sounds in any case, about right, yeah. If, think about what the numbers are today and how ridiculously expensive that is. It was just as expensive back then, too, right? And there are people paying cash out of their pocket for that. I was like, oh my God, who are you people that have that much cash? You just give this boatload of change to your children. Like, who are you? And 60% of Stanford students were paying for it. So then, you get there and you see these kids pull up in their sobs. I didn't even know what a sob was. I mean, and their Audis. I've never even seen those cars before. <laughs> um, I knew what a Mercedes was. Um, and I saw, you know, but I didn't know, I didn't even know some of these foreign import cars, right? Like, and I'm like, what are these things, right? And so it's uh, fascinating to be there with that level of wealth. And if you've walked around Stanford campus, I mean, it's gotten even nicer. I don't like it as much anymore. It was more beautiful when it was a little more rugged, if you ask me, but it's just gorgeous. I mean, gorgeous, right? I'd never seen this level of, I'd seen, like I'd been to Hearst Castle. I'd been a visit to the Hearst Castle. You know, I'd, I'd visited Winchester Mansion, right? So yes, I've seen this type of opulence, but this is like a school. <laughs> Where the hell am I, right? So it was the money differential that was pronounced for me because um, the other, so that was the bigger, that was a fascinating reality for me because I came from, for all, I mean, I came from the county. I didn't even live in Covina City. I lived in the county. So we were, in, you know, 
less less um impressive i guess um i guess i knew we weren't poor technically um i've said this before to other people we were just above that poverty line so like i didn't qualify for free lunches i didn't qualify for free stuff i mean i was poor enough to you know get financial scholarships and stuff like that but you know, it's that painful line, that 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 lower middle class line, right? Like where you're making enough money that you're not technically poor, but you don't have two nickels to rub together. God forbid something bad happened, right? So getting to a place like Stanford and seeing all this money uh, was was a shock to me. I, I and, and what was even more shocking, Jeremy, was the number of students of color that had a lot of money. I had never seen rich students of color mm-hmm. um, because I didn't come from that background. I came from a very colorful background as students of Mexican, mostly Mexican descent, Native American is my family, um, smattering of blacks in my, you know, we had a very, uh, it's California, it's much more diverse ethnically anyway, but I came from a poor community. So we're all the poor people. So all the poor people of color, right? You know, and all that, I, I come from a, um, just a more impoverished area. And so it was wild to see all these rich students of color, black students, Mexican students. I was like, who the hell are your parents? They have so much money, <laughs> um, especially with a society I'm being told is racist. And so how do all these Mexicans and blacks um, have so much money? Like, cause I thought everybody, you know, I thought they were all supposed to be poor, right? Aren't we all? And then even, even some of the Native American students, right? There's a lot of Native American students that had a lot of money. Um, and I thought, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to be like living poor on the reservation? Like <laughs> it was just, that was really kind of, I couldn't kind of put the two together, right? Like mm-hmm. I didn't know where I fit. Like, and, and I, so ultimately a lot of it was, where do I fit? Because I'm poor, right? And so there's a lot of rich kids and I don't know what that means. And then how do you negotiate? And I don't want to be poor anymore. Like I want to be like these rich kids. And am I giving, am I trading who I am? Am I leaving my people? And and I, I was like, but I don't want to be poor. Who freaking wants to be poor? Um, I don't get this anymore. I don't get this point. Like, but I'm somehow leaving my people. And then who are my people, right? Because here I'm in this environment. I mean, I, I come from a very mixed background in my family. So I never really had a racial identity so much because I have a, I have blacks and Mexicans and Hispanics. And I mean, I guess hex, Mexican, Hispanic, whatever the word is today, Latinx, whatever the hell the new term is, um, you know, Asians. I had literally like a little mini, you know, United Nations in my family in terms of where we came from. So I didn't know what, where, what group I fit in. Um, and even... And so that was, I think it was, it was more of a cultural for any person, it's a cultural shock, but it was the big variable for me was financial. I didn't understand because so much of what you listen to in society, so much of what the loud voices are chirping about is these economic disparities, these, these economic systematic um, repressive systems. And and I'm sitting in an environment with a lot of freaking people with a lot of money that look pretty diverse to me. So I'm like, well, where the hell do I fit? So yeah, again, a lot of story there, but um, massive cultural shock, massive cultural shock. And speaking about all the trauma, yes, all the trauma did come out. I mean, hardcore, like 
I had a massive breakdown freshman year and had to go to counseling and was even sent home because all that stuff uh, finally bubbled to the surface, right? So it was the first time I went to counseling and it was awesome. I love counselors. So, yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> I do. So you're 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 going through uh, Stanford. Your it it's it sounds like you had a major transition in just the way that you were seeing the world, and you you before you talked about before you went there, you had this notion of exactly why are we supposed to hate Russians? What <laughs> what 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 is if I were to meet a Russian, would they punch me? Like that sort of thing. And so then you go into this, you know, wonderfully diverse environment at Stanford University, and you're seeing uh, people from a different uh, socioeconomic kind of strata. They look a lot like the folks that you were there with before that you grew up around. It's just that they are people who are wearing nicer clothes and have nicer cars and maybe speak in a different way. And you're seeing they're a lot like the same people that I grew up around. There's different uh, different ways of manners of of talking to each other, but there's there's a sameness in these different crews, these different people. Yeah, you know. And so you're you're evolving in this, and kind of as you graduate from Stanford, like where are you at in your view of the world and in the direction that you want to go? How did it evolve? Yeah. Um... So part of part of the evolution obviously did, you know, blossom or, 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 or I feel like the seed burst open in terms of what's possible going to Stanford and being in this such a different environment and knowing simultaneously my life's going to look different. Um, I think that's the thing that coming from the background I came from and then going into this environment realizing and actually there was a there was a class I took at Stanford it's like the one of the few I literally remember very little very little <laughs> but one of the classes I remember money well spent huh money well spent yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah exactly um a lot of the foundational um disciplines are still in place it's just the details <laughs> eh, whatever and this is sure. And that's actually a philosophy of mine anyway. So it, it was money well spent. Um, <laughs> one of the classes specifically I remember was a sociology class. Probably were like 50 or 60 of us in this class. And she would constantly, the professor would constantly break us up into identification markers. So you'd either break up male, female. Uh, you'd break up firstborn, middle child, oldest, only child, foster child, right? You'd break up into sort of birth order or kind of what kind of child you were. You'd break up into raised in the South, raised in the North, West Coast, East Coast. You'd break up so geographic territories, economic territory, economic strata, uh, racial lines. So, you'd, you know, section, so she kept breaking us up. And every time you'd break into a group, you'd have to get together with the people that identified that way. And, and, and identify all the ways you were similar or thought you were similar, um, discuss where maybe some of the differences were in your conversations as you're going through those similarities. And then, and then why you were different than the other groups, you know? And then we would all get together as a group and discuss how we thought about the other groups. Fascinating study, right? And they do stuff like this. You see, you can Google these type of experiments they do with groups of people, and you know, they're fun to watch, right? Opening up people's minds to how do we really think about you, right? Your group, whatever your group 
is, right? If we got really gut level honest, what would we say about y'all? The only group I remember was the economic group. When she had us break up into economic classes, right? Because at that point in time, what I began to realize and what I had always believed was life was more, and, and I was a history teacher, I was a history student. I, 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 I know that history matters, right? My experience had been personally what I had come to believe, but also what history teaches you. It's really always an issue of economics. It's always an issue of class, right? So, so while we might label it, it's an issue of gender, it's an issue of race, it's an issue of some other identity. It really is an issue of money because different economic groups do think alike. <laughs> There's a lot of similarities because you give, you start to hear, they start to sound alike, which is why I didn't match all these rich students of color. I'm like, we don't have the same life experience. You have a completely different life experience than I do. Um, I don't care what color you are, right? Um, or And so that was the thing about when we were the poor kids, so the poor kids, and then obviously middle class and and what was even funnier was she she broke it down by levels and the uber wealthy, <laughs> I watched them. I was particularly interested in the uber wealthy and the wealthy kids. You saw them kind of break, you know, they're going to their respective corners of the room. And all of a sudden you realize, I mean, there's only a handful in each group, group right? And you realize, I saw the uber wealthy kids like realize, hey, let's just, let's just go in with the wealthy kids because I don't want to articulate exactly how much money I have. And the funnier part was these were the most social justice of the warriors. We didn't have the term social justice warrior oh, back then, but the okay. most vocal, loud, annoying, greasy wheels that just won't shut the F up about how society is systematically oppressing them were these uber wealthy kids. And I was like, oh my God. And I thought wow. that's, a privilege of, that's a privilege of money. When you, you can be a freaking social justice warrior and go, save the world when mommy daddy paid for everything and you got a trust fund it's a lot easier to save the world when you got a trust fund right when you don't have to make your own money it's a lot easier and i know that truth because i have money now it's a lot easier when you got a lot of money and you're comfortable it's you just can be a social justice warrior let me be real clear so that's that's th what i noticed was one that right yeah. like people yeah. and or you're they're super poor so either you have nothing to lose because you're so poor it doesn't matter or you have nothing to lose because you got so much money, it doesn't matter. Very similar attitudes in terms of how they think my experience has been. And you know, you know, it's it's kind of interesting when you talk about this because I'm like, uh, it feels a little bit like the concept of survivor's guilt, if you will. Uh, the, the the concept that there's guilt there. Uh, what you're what you're talking about here is there's guilt for the wealth. There's guilt for the that station in society where you know that you don't necessarily fit in with 95% of the rest of society because you've been raised in, you know a different space in the world, and you want them not to necessarily feel like you are so different from them. So if you very vocally mm. uh, fight on behalf of them, um, I mean, you, you, you turn the, you've heard the term LARPing, you know, uh, a live action role play uh, where- okay. Uh, where th there's this kind of a uh, projection of self mm -hmm. into a different space uh, in order to uh, play a role in society. It sounds like that's what you were witnessing there. It's kind of like LARPing, I'm with all of you kind of stuff. Again, absolutely. It could be driven by that or just 
truly, I mean, I'm a, I don't, the term, I'm a social justice warrior. I do believe because I have a servant's heart, right? But I was, it's it, so you can be driven by very pure, loving, altruistic motives. Sure. And it could be something else. And yeah. it could be a combination of both. Again, I, I never want to tell somebody what it is. I just want them to examine it. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I say all this because I, in that class and in that moment, one of the biggest conversations us poor kids had was, we're not going to stay poor. We don't want to stay poor. We want to be at those other levels. And, and yet, are we going to lose some of the fundamental attributes that got, are there some things that we've learned that got us here? And if we don't have those anymore, and I watch it with my kids. I mean, you know, very, my son was raised in a completely 180 environment from me. I mean, all across the board, everything was different for him. And he has a very different outlook on life, way healthier, <laughs> thank God. Um, a way healthier perspective about himself, about other people, um, not always fighting to survive. He never, never had to fight to survive. So it doesn't feel the need to fight because there's a lot, there's a lot of what, when you're, when you are fighting, surviving, you're, you are kind of always fighting, not, you're not trying to be fighting people all the time, but you're, you're struggling, right? Um, yeah. You just can't relax. And so a lot of story here. That class and recognizing that, so you asked, the, the initial question was like the transformation or what changed. And, and that process of recognizing my life is going to look dramatically different, but how, and what does that mean? And who am I on the other side of those changes? So in a weird way, you mentioned survivor's guilt. Yeah. Like all of a sudden I'm like, what does that say about me? What does that say about my people? Well, who are my people? Like, do I, do I want those people that you tell me are my people? <laughs> um, I, I, it was, so it's identity. It was an identity struggle. So a lot, there was a ton, and it took a lot, it took decades to go through that identity struggle. Um, decades to figure that one out, to finally start making some coming to peace with who, who do I think I am? Um, who do I believe I am? And who do I want to therefore walk out into the world as, you know? Um, it took a long time. So the process, like I said, it sort of that seed broke open and a lot of the stuff started then getting tossed around and it took decades of tossing around. So, yeah. Well, where'd you go after, uh, after you got your degree? So obviously I taught you all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so again, at that point, Again, the Cold War had ended, right? I'm in college, Cold War ends. I realized I really just want to teach. And so even though I was an international studies major and I was living in the Russian theme house and studying Russian, I went, you know what? I just want to be a teacher. I called my high school, a teacher from my high school, who was my, one of my mentors and said, how do you make these decisions about life? How do you decide what you want to be for the rest of your life? And she pretty much said, first of all, you don't figure that out, like what you want to be for the rest of your life. You just make a decision and go for it. And I was like, all right. I said, well, I want to be a teacher. She says, go for it. And so that's when I knew, okay, I'm going to be a teacher. I'll go into the high school system, the educational system. And then I probably won't stay there. I figured I would transition into adult education. Two, two ways I was going to take it. I was either going to transition into the world of adult education and I wasn't totally sure what that looked like, that corporate environment, because I had a, be a business bent. I wanted to kind of operate in the business world. 
Or should I go the political realm where I go into DC and like started like moving up and going to the DC and 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 fight for sort of the educational system in the United States. So when I left and went into teaching, uh, and after being in the education system and after seeing kind of what that environment was like, I realized there's no way in hell I want to be in this system. Um, absolutely not. <laughs> Do not want to be in politics because education is politics. Hell effing no. Um, I do not want to work for the masses. Um, education is a mass system. Uh, anything politically, anything the government does is a mass system. And I do not, I don't think like the masses. I don't want to hang out with the masses. Yeah, not interested in the masses. And so um, figured, okay, let me go into the corporate environment. And so that's kind of, I taught for a couple of years made the transition into literally just kind of found a job in corporate marketing, wildly enough, for a construction firm. And so it was just sort of a random, I had enough skills under my belt to sort of talk my way into this job. Um, it's really at that, it was more business development. I'm a salesperson. I'm a teacher, preacher, salesperson. Like this is my personality, right? Like I can sell ideas. I can sell, I, I'm a teacher. I can convince you of something. So business development, that's what I went into, into marketing business development of a construction firm. And the idea was, you know, to develop into doing, bringing in clients, right? Um, sales, corporate sales is essentially what it is. Business development, corporate development, uh, you know, that got me out of teaching. That got me into the corporate world. Um <laughs> And then part of what was a part of that part of what I was grappling with also at the time was, do I want this sort of high-powered career, the corporate, you know, the, the corner office overlooking the, the 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 fancy city with my secretary? Again, we use the word secretary at the time. I think we call them administrative assistants now. I don't know. With my assistant, you know, with with people reporting to me, do I want that kind of lifestyle? With you know business suits and corporate jets, or do I want to be married with a family? And so I didn't see how they would work together. I didn't know how to figure that out. Like, how do you have a high power career and marriage and children? And did I really want marriage and children? And so the reason why I bring that up is because that's part of the dialogue of a young person. Every 20 something starts to think these thoughts, like what do I want to do? How do I do it? Um, and you choose a path. And so uh, one of the <laughs> one of the things I had chosen to do was I was trying to blend the two. So I ended up leaving California on a whim because a guy I went to college with, who was like my best buddy, his name was Matt. I met him at Stanford. We were like best friends. We were drinking buddies, is what we were. We freaking drank and passed out together. Um, very good boy. He was a good boy. Never, never did anything inappropriate, right? He was a good boy. I was not a good girl. He was a good boy. Um, I was always trying to do stuff with Matt. He, would, he was always a good boy. Um, and so um, he he went off to Idaho. That's where he lived. He got his job and degrees and stuff. We kept in touch. And so here I am now in the working world. I'm working at this construction firm and business development, you know, going on these business meetings and it's, you know, all fancy and feels very special. And he basically says, why don't you, you know, come to a corporate event with me? He's like, I mind myself all the time. And so I flew out to Idaho and we hung out for the weekend and had a blast. And I'm like, why don't I? And I'm like, dude, why don't we get married? Like, why? Why? How come we haven't gotten married? How come we don't date? How come he's like, well, because 
we just don't, I don't know. And so I said, okay, let's date. So I literally packed up all my stuff and moved to Idaho. (laughs) Because I thought, what better person to marry than your best friend? Matt and I were friends. We'd been friends since college, since freshman year. I met him my freshman year. And um, yeah, so I married Matt. I moved to Idaho. I married Matt. Um, And actually, and I tell people this all the time, I love Matt absolutely, deeply purely um I just wasn't I I didn't have those like those feelings those butterflies in your stomach feelings that we're all looking for we all believe love many of us most of us society tells us love is those feelings in your tummy lust basically people are trying to rationalize and justify lust right I had no lust for Matt um zero lust for Matt love him great man but (laughs) I didn't want to sleep with Matt um, well, I would have, but he never let me <laughs> um, until we got married. <laughs> um, and so um, he was a good boy. Uh, the um, I, I didn't have those feelings for Matt. And I thought that's what I was supposed to have. And so Matt and I get married for all the right reasons. I mean, it, the checklist of all the right reasons. It was a perfectly beautiful, excellent arranged marriage. I mean, truly could have had the best marriage ever. Absolutely. Um, I know it now, now, you know, 54 years, you know, I know it now, but at the time, because I wasn't having all those lustful feelings for my husband, you know, I wasn't like, Ooh, let's, let's get it on baby. Um, I thought that it wasn't good enough. And so, um, I left and that, I left the marriage. We'd already had a kid. I mean, I got pregnant. We had a baby. And it's really when my son Grayson was born. It was then that I knew I can't, I can't do this. I can't stay married to this man that I have no love for. I'm not in love with him. It's like being married to a roommate. Well, welcome to marriage. Anybody who's been married long enough. Yeah. You know, love is a choice. Let me be real clear. Yeah. In any case, that's a different conversation we can have, but it's a great conversation. Um, so I left and that, Leaving Matt, uh, leaving the father of my son, destroying a marriage, destroying a family. Ooh, that that's that took a toll in a way that everything else prior pales in comparison to what I had done. Because everything else that had happened to me up to that point were things that were part of a world that I didn't really create, right? Like my parents. Their craziness wasn't my craziness. You know, I was even molested. That wasn't my fault, right? Like people do crappy things. Shit happens around you, but it's not mine. And so I can, I can let people go. I can forgive them and move on. When I did it, when I'm the source of the evil, when I'm the source of the destruction, oh, that 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 was my beginning of my decade in hell. So so you asked what happened after Stanford. So I was, I guess, you know, so I teach you guys for a couple of years. I go into corporate for a few years. Um, I leave my marriage uh, and 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 really just that's when like all the drugs and alcohol that I had been, um, socially consuming. I wasn't a, I'm called a binger or a periodic. I don't 
uh, drink all the time. I don't drug all the time, but I'm one of those who had goes and has a good time because, you know, it's the weekend and you're allowed to party. Um, you know, this is what you tell yourself, right? I've done, I finished all my work, you know, I'm ready to go. Um, well, that's when the drugs and alcohol, again, all those years of kind of indulging for the weekend, I just kind of really caught up. Um, nice. And I really hard, I mean, I, I didn't realize how much I was drinking and drugging. I, I really didn't because I didn't do it every day. Um, but I was, in any case, so yeah. that decade of hell started again, recognizing my own, what I call my own depravity, um, had to confront myself and what I had just done with my life. And, and now all of a sudden I'm questioning everything. I'm questioning every decision I'd made about everything. And I didn't know where to go with it. Like I didn't. And so I just, and I still I have a child to raise. I have a mortgage to pay. So I'm still doing all the things I have to do, right? I'm still working. I'm still paying bills. I'm still, you know, calling my mom and dad, telling them I love them. Cause you got to call your parents. You know, I'm still, still doing everything society says you're supposed to do, but I am like kind of dying inside too, trying to figure it out. Um, until I eventually crashed and burned. So I've just jabbered a lot. And I don't, your question was what happened after. There's a lot that happens after um, that I left, after I, you know, left Stanford and started teaching, but sort of, so for, that's really the big, the big next moment was that decade of just insanity. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and, and I'm really, it, it's very interesting to hear these kinds of stories where, College is right supposed to prepare you in many ways for the world, and it doesn't really prepare you for much of anything. And that has become very apparent in recent years, as not only are people graduating with no real usable skills, <laughs> but they're in a tremendous amount of debt. They have strange ideas about what the world is supposed to be. And now go and be successful. There was a poster in the 1980s that I just saw. And it was this poster of a giant mansion on a hill. And there it was by a lighthouse on a bay. And then there were all of these supercars in the driveway, five supercars, like a Ferrari and a Lamborghini and a Mercedes and all this sort of stuff. And it said, um, incentive for a higher education at the top. Like- that higher education is going to get you that mansion and the five supercars and everything like that. That was the vision of what education was. And I know that a lot of millennial and Gen Z bought into that because that's what they were constantly told. And so then you yes. go out there into the world and there is no guidance for how to make good choices. You may have grown up as a person of faith and you can use that as some of a guide in some of this sort of thing, but it's a very difficult thing to, to know that you're making the right decision. You have all these movies and songs tell you to listen to your heart and then you end up leaving your marriage and, and getting into a decade of darkness and everything like that. And so for you, all of this has happened. You're super smart, bright, gifted, Stanford graduate person, and now you're living this decade that you are just not having a good time. Something happens there that changes and turns things around. Like what, what occurred? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. So um, obviously I wrote the book, The Happiness Formula, right? So The Happiness yeah. Formula came out in 2019. The happiness formula really kind of started back in that uh, 
back in the beginning of that decade, that's sort of my decade of darkness, right? My descent, I call my descent into hell. I've told people a million times, okay. I've been to hell and I'm not going back. <laughs> I'm not going back. Um, and and it was dark. And there was, there absolutely hands down, unequivocally, there's such thing as evil spirits, hands down, unequivocally, seen them, battled them, dealt with them, freaking scary. It's a scary world. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, praise be to God, there's a more powerful uh, world of um, excellent uh, forces as well. So spirits as well. So, so one part of what happened in that descent, part of what happened into that sort of like decade of darkness um, was this idea of like, why the hell can't I stay happy? Like I, I realized I had such a critical spirit like I was so critical of myself. Um, I had a, 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 it's never good enough spirit. Um, more, 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 better, better, better. Uh, what's the next thing? The next thing, bigger, better deal, BBD, bigger, better deal. Like all of that languaging that is good languaging in a lot of ways because it's the languaging of success, right? It's and at this point in time, again, I'm still working at a high level. I have nice corporate jobs. I've got nice paychecks. I've got nice homes. <laughs> it's amazing how effed up you can be and still do pretty well. I mean, it's functional, uh, functional yeah. darkness, right? I'm very aware of this. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing. I've worked with some real interesting folks. Right. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. And and the thing is, so so... I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything society says. I've got these degrees. So yeah, I, I blew one marriage, but like I, I recognize I blew it. Like I'm, 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 I'm self-actualized enough, emotionally intelligent enough to kind of recognize my failings, you know? And so I'm doing all the self-help. I'm love therapists. I'm going to bunches of them. I'm going to retreat. I'm doing like, I'm doing all the work involved on the sort of emotional, uh, intellectual, physical, I'm doing all the things, right, that society tells you to do. And then they're good. These are good disciplines. And it's a good discipline to sort of, you know, pull your pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, suck it up, right? You know, if these are good teachings, right? You know, stop being so emotional, just do the next right thing. So, and simultaneously, it's not that there's a balance. I, I don't like the word balance because there's no such thing. It's like a dance. There's the dance between facts, like shut the F up and do your damn job because you got to pay a mortgage and you got to feed your kids. Just go to effing work. And, but I'm miserable and I'm hurting and I'm scared and I'm lost and I'm confused and I'm lonely and I'm terrified. And you're dancing. And right? the other part of that is, and I make too much money to complain. <laughs> I, don't a, I don't have a right or, to be upset. Or yeah, or okay. In my case, before I even made money, here was the thing for me: I'm too smart. I have a big brain. God would not have given me this big brain if He didn't expect me to figure it out. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. Cassandra, I gave you a lot of intelligence so you could figure it out, so I can go worry about these other people. I mean, this sounds so effed up. I can't believe I'm saying it, but this is how I thought. I need to go help the people that, you know, can't figure it out. Let me go help them. So I didn't think God was ignoring me. I didn't think that. I wasn't even sure about God anyway. That's another story. It's part of the story. 
whatever this thing is, if there is a God, I knew people were different. I was given a lot of brains. I was also given, here's what's interesting. I was given a lot of brains, so I should be able to figure it out. I was given incredible verbal dexterity. So I should be able to verbally manage myself through processes. I was given an incredibly analytic mind. So extreme analysis. So I can see, I can put the, and, and I'm strategic thinker. I have an analytic strategic thinking mind, global, I'm a visionary. So I have that kind of mind. So I can see things. It's actually, it's prophetic. I can see where things are going to go. I know what's going to happen. I do. <laughs> I don't mean like I can tell you when you're going to die. That's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is I have enough data that I can tell you if you continue on this path, this is what's going to happen. I had that kind of mind where I'm like, well, I can put two and two together and see what it really equates to. And so I have this you know, high intellect, the way my mind works in terms of visioning stuff verbal dexterity. I'm also not too shabby to look at. So it's not like, um, and that helps in a society that is visually based, being decent looking enough, you know, comb your hair, brush your teeth, you know, look a little more decent helps. And I come by that a little easier than some, right? Because I don't look too shabby. So, um, and, and, and I'm, and I'm physically able, I'm incredibly physically able. So I'm healthy. So I don't get sick. I mean, seriously, who's going to help me? I'm supposed to help myself. There's no way someone should have to help me. I should be able to figure it out myself. This is what my thinking was, right? Because you have all these skills. And that's what I think trips up so many of us as adults in particular. Yes, a lot of adults, even if they don't have the criteria I have, have other criteria, right? And, and that's what's so scary. You're like, I have all these skills and attributes or I'm supposed to be an adult. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to figure this out. It's so freaking scary. So again, it's, I had no idea how to manage all this. How do you deal with all this? And this is, and that's why it was so crazy to me because especially because I got myself in such jacked up situations, part of my descent into hell this is a story I don't tell very often. It's funny. It doesn't show up in my book, which I found fascinating in hindsight in reading it. It just didn't have a place in the book. It's not that I was avoiding it. It just didn't have a place. Part of my descent into hell was I got married a second time. I eloped. If you want to talk about signs of insanity, you know, there's anybody who reads, who knows the Bible, there's something called fruits of the spirit, it's Galatians 5. The Lord talks about if you are in Christ, if you have the spirit of the Lord in your spirit, in your body, in your mind, in your heart, your life will manifest in a certain way. It will. If you have the spirit of the Lord, you will walk differently. The ways that you will, and they're called the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? Humility. These things do become part of you. Well, there's also the fruits of evil as well. <laughs> there are signs that you are not walking in the spirit of excellence. One of those signs that you are not walking in the spirit of excellence is you alone. Hands down. That is a sign that you are effed up. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. 
Uh, yeah, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to think right now just offhand if I know of a couple that eloped and stayed together for an enduring amount of time. And and I'm I'm just off the top of my head, I'm not I'm not coming up with that. So yeah, what what happened here? <laughs> and I mean like I mean people going into the justice of the peace, you know, with family That's knowing different. I don't I'm not talking about that. Yeah. I'm talking about people who literally get married in secret, who get married based on an an overwhelming rush of emotions and let's go get married because we're meant to be. We're each other's kindred spirits. So when I married this man, I even, I don't, I hate to say his name because I don't want to disparage him. Sure. Because it's not about him. Um, yeah. But when I married this man, um, I literally said to myself, um, this is, so this is my descent into hell. When I look back at how much I had destroyed, what I had done to my first marriage, the father of my child, um, the family that had been put together. Again, it was very logical. Everything about Matt was beautiful and brilliant. I mean, really, I mean, brilliant. No reason not to be together. Um, very logical. And so I thought the next time, and I said this out loud, the next time I get married, pure lust. I'm getting married purely for lust. Screw this logic crap. Apparently it didn't work for them the first time. I'm going to do it for lust. <laughs> Sounds logical. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So how'd this go? This yeah. This sounds like it was set up for success. Yeah. <laughs> so I mentioned I don't drink or do drugs anymore, right? Sure. So when you when you look at the um what addiction is, when you look at what obsession is, when you look at what a lot of mental health disorders are, they're idol worship, they're obsessions of the heart and mind. Okay, okay. And they are. They can be overcome with proper dialogue, with proper sort of, I want to call it spiritual input, because there are forces playing, spiritual forces playing on our dispositions to indulge our flesh. And I mean, our flesh of, um, I want the pleasure, I want to have pleasure. The happiness formula, when I came up with the title, it was fascinating to me that I was always looking for pleasure. I was always looking for happiness. I just want to feel good. I want to feel like I belong. I want to feel like I'm in love. I want to feel like we're best friends. I want to feel like this job matters. I want to feel like I'm making a difference. It's an F word. The feel word is an F word. Feelings are not facts. They're not facts. They're not truth. They're flags. They're flags. They're waving something in front of you to pay attention, but they're not truth. In the slightest sense, your feelings are not truth. Insofar as this, I did not know that. <laughs> I thought the problem was I wouldn't allow myself to have feelings. So hearken back to how I was raised. I was raised in an environment, a lot of the 50 plus year old people have this, we were raised with this idea of suck it up, buttercup, suck yeah, it up. Sure. Yeah. You know, we were not allowed to express our feelings. We were not allowed to say how I feel maybe for like a nanosecond and then wipe your freaking tears, put a bandaid on it, go to freaking work. Like no one wanted to hear your crap. No one wanted to hear your excuses. And absolutely none of this victim crap. You're blaming your, I mean, we don't allow you to blame your parents in my generation. You cannot blame your parents for, effing you up. 
I still believe that, by the way. I do. I'm a little more compassionate about how I say it to people nowadays, but I still believe that. You you are never, ever, ever a victim. Ever. Ever. I don't care what happened to you. Welcome to being human in a world where mm. evil exists and a whole boatload of beauty as well. And you, mm. you got to decide who you're going to be. Yeah. So I appreciate that my parents were the type of people that they were in so far as they were absolutely always said, we love you, Cassandra. You can do whatever you want. Suck it up and make it happen. Right. Figure it out. Right. And, and, and I love you and I'm here for you, but I only know so much. So figure it out. <laughs> I really appreciated a lot of that about them. Right. I, they raised me pretty right for all the stupid crap they did wrong too. Um, and, and so what I'm saying is I, I never, I never cried. I didn't cry growing up. I never, I didn't know how to feel, which is part of the reason why I appreciate that the pendulum has swung so far to the other side. <laughs> I do appreciate that part of that is, and it actually happened when I was teaching you all. When I was teaching you all in the early nineties, it was the beginning of the self-esteem movement. It was the beginning of uh, having diff different educational curriculums for different students in the class. You know, so so we we weren't quite it, it was the beginning of prescribing drugs to kids. You know, it was the beginning. And so and and how does this child feel about themselves? How do they feel about life and actually asking you all how you felt? I appreciated that a lot. And at the same time, there's a dance right between, OK, you feel that way. But here's the truth of life and what you have to do. You know what I'm saying? There's a dance. Yes. Um, you know, you don't always, you have to get up every day and go to work, whether you feel like it or not, <laughs> get up and go to work. Right. But if you're miserable, well, maybe you need to go talk to a therapist, you know what I'm but show up at work. Right. So there's, there's that dance between the feelings. So I appreciated during your generation that we started this self-esteem. How do people feel about stuff? Um, let's think about the language that we use. I appreciated all of that. I believed in all of that. Again, the pendulum has swung over here where I'm certain I've offended everybody and their mother so far on this, my languaging, right? Because, you know, whatever, I still probably use the words all wrong. Uh, whatever. You're going to have to ask me about it, you know? Um, what I'm saying is I realized I didn't know how I felt about life. So part of this getting into this relate, so, so, so getting married having a relationship for pure lust was really my way of trying to examine what if I went completely on feelings? What would life look like? And, and so I eloped with this dude <laughs> and it was, and it was um, super electric, super charged, lust wise, um, super emotionally intense. I have never in my life felt that level of emotional intensity about anything. And he was, he was all the words that we use today. We didn't use these words back then. They didn't, I don't think they existed in our vocabulary, but everybody throws them around today. Narcissist, gaslighting. Um, he was at the turn, the, the, he was just an abuser. He was an abuser. He was verbally abusive and physically abusive. Mm -hmm. Those are the terms we used back then. Now we have all these clinical terms and everybody throws them around and uses them incorrectly, whatever. Everybody can't be a narcissist. Um, people are selfish and self-centered, but not everybody's an actual narcissist. But um, he was definitely sick. Um, and I and 
realizing how scary he was because he was scary. He was a big man. Um, he was a, uh, and I mean, a physically muscular man. I mean, he was a work, he was a personal trainer, worked in the fitness industry, beautiful Adonis, God, you know, tall, dark and handsome kind of dude. Right. Um, and very scary. And, um, I, and, and I realized when I, one of the things that God has given me naturally, and I appreciate it is that very quickly I can recognize if I'm in this situation, how did I get myself here? When someone is attacking me verbally, physically, how did I get myself into this situation? Not how am I to blame? It's not about that. How am I here? How am I in a relationship with this person? And so mind you, I've married him already. So I'm already, you know, betrothed. And I'm like, holy shoot. I just yeah. married a really sick man. And, and I want to get into all the details, but it was sick. Um, that's another podcast. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, I had to confront myself. How did I get myself here? And talk about talk about the final crash and burn. Like I literally found myself in a closet, in a closet, in the corner of the closet, trying to just shrink, trying to just shrink, I, trying to disappear. I figured if I can make myself small enough in this corner, <laughs> your, your mind's crazy. Um, because I couldn't commit suicide. I didn't want to kill myself, but I wanted to die because I, I didn't, I didn't know how I got myself here. How the hell was I in this situation? And it was isolating. He had, again, it, it was, it was scary. And, and, um, and I'm in this corner of this closet uh, in the upstairs room, the farthest room in the house I could get away from trying to shrink into a, a ball. And then, you know, Again, I know at this time, I know it's God. I didn't know at the time, but God, God shows up in the way God talks to me. It's like, okay, Cassandra, look at your situation. What do you, what's the physical situation right now? And I'm like, I am trying to shrink into nothingness in the corner of a closet in the house because I'm married to this crazy psycho man. Yeah. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Holy mother of God, am I totally crazy, right? And I'm like, and God's like, no, you're not crazy. But what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I guess I got to figure it out. All right. What's the first thing you can do? Well, I could stop trying to disappear in a corner. Because <laughs> you're not going to disappear. You're not going to just suddenly shrink into this ball and nothingness. You're here. You are, you're married to the psycho man. You're confused. What are you going to do? And I thought, well, and I had a job still, still working. Um, but well, I'm going to have to go to work tomorrow. I'm going to have to be effective in my job. I and mean, they pay me to be effective. Um, and I was, I had pretty big jobs, so I had to be really effective. Right. And I could compartmentalize. That was one thing I could do kind of, sort of, um, my personal life was leaking out in my work life. That's another part of the story. So I thought I could compartmentalize, but I couldn't. And that's essentially what I realized was I'm not compartmentalizing well anymore. And so I thought, you know what, get up, dust yourself off, get ready for the day. 
and start doing the next right indicated thing. What can you do? What, what step can you take? And so I went to therapy. <laughs> what can I do? I can go to a therapist because something's wrong with me. And then again, I started the therapy again and started to walk through how did I get myself into this situation? What am I looking for? What do I want? And started to sort of build up, just go back to things I'd already kind of been taught and realizing I do want happiness. I do want pleasure. I do want to feel good. That is true. Those are normal, good, God-given sensations, right? God wants us. We are sentient beings meant to feel joy, happiness, love, warmth, comfort. Those are all wonderful and God-given and correct. And then there's reality. So how are you going to dance between them? And I begin to give myself permission to feel, um, to like really examine, okay, how do I feel? Like really? Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, Jeremy, I didn't know half the time. I didn't know how, I didn't know the words for the feelings all the time. And that's what therapy gave me, right? They give me words. They give you, maybe it's this and examine this. And you're like, oh, okay. Could it be that? Could it be this? Could it be a combination of all of it? Right. And, um, and so that started the ascent out of the pit. In particular, uh, I, the crashing and burning wasn't done though. I had to finally, officially, when I officially blew up my world, was um, realizing it was kind of a, a perfect storm. Of I begin to start to examine maybe this God dude is real. Like that's part of the piece I hadn't yet ever factored in totally. I kind of dabbled with the idea of God because society, I mean, 97% supposedly of the world believes in a God, you know, seven or so percent. I don't know. It could be a smaller number. It could be a little higher or truly atheists. Right. And I, I knew I wasn't an atheist. I'd already kind of figured that one out. Like I believed there was a God, a something, um, I just kind of knew it in my soul. I just, I wanted it to be. Let me be real clear. I wanted there to be something. Otherwise, because for me to be an atheist just didn't work for me. To me, to it didn't, it didn't, let me put it this way. I would be a very scary atheist because I already demonstrated enough of not giving a shit about you, the proverbial you. I'd already shown how easy it was for me to use people hmm. to myself. I'd already demonstrated enough to myself how selfish and self-centered I can be. And to believe that there isn't a God that has a system of order and structure and morality and ethics that are higher than myself, I had to believe in that. Otherwise, left to my own devices, I might do something nice. I might do something good. But I promise you, it was all to make sure I got something out of it. Um, absolutely. Um, and I didn't realize how much of a user of people I was, because I would have never thought that about myself. I would have never put myself in that category. But I really walked around with an underlying, because I thought I cared. I thought I wanted to save people. I thought I wanted to help people. And I did. I do genuinely, truly want to, again, that pure altruistic self and this other self. <laughs> that isn't so pure. And that's all about what's in it for me, the with them, what's in it for me, what's in it for Cassandra? What am I getting out of this, right? Hence my feelings. If I'm not feeling motivated by you, 
I might stop giving to you, right? And so am I giving to you because I'm truly giving because I'm good and altruistic? Or am I giving because in the end I get something out of it? Man alive, Jeremy. <sighs> I'm pretty certain I only get 99% of the time I only gave when I thought I was going to get something out of it. Really, ultimately, when I thought I could get something. And, and it might be, I mean, I might give to a poor person on the street. What could a poor person give to me? What I was getting was I felt good about me. Look at me. Even if it was only me, even if it was anonymous, I gave money to that person who's poor, homeless, can't, they're not, they don't know my name. They're not going to take a picture and put me on social media, which didn't exist back then. You know, they're not going to go tell the world I'm great. Nobody saw me do it. Totally anonymous. You know what I got out of it? I felt like I was a good person. I didn't realize how much I was motivated by that. Um, that's what I had to confront, I guess. That's part of what, for me, in choosing a God, and so that's part of the story, in, in deciding I needed something that can get me out of me so that I am dying to self, that I would sacrifice myself on a cross for the people so they don't have to suffer. That's what who Jesus became, right? Like I begin to recognize there's truths to what God's saying there. You know, a, a good man might die for a friend, but he certainly won't die for an enemy. But Jesus demonstrates he dies for everybody, right? This idea that really step out of yourself I wanted to be like that. I, I decided I wanted to be like that. I wanted to be that good. Not, not so you'd all feel good about me. Not even so I'd feel good about me. I just began to believe it was true. Um, and that, 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 that was the point. That's why I began to recognize, okay, I do believe in a God. I'm not sure if it's this Jesus dude. Not really keen on him too much. Appreciate him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. the story. But um and so I started the process of exploring that and man alive in, in starting that process. Uh, this is one of the things that most people who are especially an early Christian or someone who's deciding whether they want to accept Christ. One of the things that is true is once the moment you accept Christ, all hell is going to break loose. Generally speaking, all hell is going to break loose because as soon as the enemy knows he's lost one, He's going to, or he's got about to lose one. He's about to make your life effing miserable um, so that you don't seek God. He's going to do everything possible to, to do whatever it takes. He could even make it so glorious, i.e. to your point, so rich. There's a, it's Proverbs 30, 30. I have it written down so I can remember it. Proverbs 37 through nine. It talks about Lord, get, I ask for two things. Don't give me so little that I steal and I rob, right? Don't give me so little that I'm desperate and dying and, and, and can't see you because I'm just scrapping to survive. And don't give me so much that I don't think I need you. I mean, there's, the Lord says it more eloquent in his word, but mm -hmm. um, I read that. I remember reading, I read the Bible a ton before I accepted Christ. I read a lot of different religious books before I accepted Christ. And I remember reading that and thinking, there's a truth to that. Like, I, I, I need this balance between this life of how I feel about it and what's real and, and what is real because I don't know how to feel if I don't know what's real. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's, it's, it was this dance and I, and I, and I, 
again, I'd done a lot of, I'd had a lot of success in by society's terms. And so I, it wasn't the success that was going to get me. It wasn't the success that was going to, um, I'd already kind of been there, done that enough for me. It was the, the crashing and burning, losing it all. I really, I, I had to lose it all. I had to crash and burn in the worst way. So lost my job, got fired because I was drunk. And so why do I not drink and drug? Because A, I can't. <laughs> um, I'm really bad when you put intoxicants in my body. I do not know what's going to happen, first and foremost. Um, and the other thing is I blew up my world. I, I, I blew up everything. And so here I have a mortgage and a child to raise. I'm, I'm with this man who's crazy. And, and I, and so my whole world exploded. I mean, he's cheating on me. He's drinking and drugging and acting nuts and embarrassing. I mean, just, oh my God, how the hell did I get here? Um, and that's kind of what happened. I did at one point finally get on my knees and thought, Lord, if you're real, if you're real, you're going to have to show up because this is miserable. I do not. I have created the most insane world. I'm married to this crazy freak of a man, this abusive, out of control. Again, I didn't have the worst narcissist and all that kind of good stuff. Sure, but sure. Um, I've lost my job because I got fired. I'm apparently this drug addict alcoholic that I didn't know I was. What the fudge? <laughs> mm -hmm, right. Um, and that was it. That was what it took. I... Uh, Crashed and burned. October 29th, 2006, uh, went to a church service, uh, heard a pastor at the time, he's no longer an official pastor anymore. Pete Briscoe was preaching at Bentry Bible Fellowship in Carrollton, Texas, and the church still exists. Pete Briscoe still exists. And um, at the time he was preaching on that Sunday, October 29th, 2006, on uh, John 635, which is John six is about the bread of life that nothing will satisfy you. Nothing in this world, nothing of this life will satisfy you. Only I will satisfy. Eat of me, drink of me. It's that whole sense of only the Lord's going to satisfy. And, and I believed it. I believed it. I finally kind of hit that point where I thought, you know what, Lord, whoever you are, because I still wasn't comfortable saying Jesus. Jesus sure. Christ, my Lord and Savior. You know, I had too much tele-evangelist sound in my head to say Jesus. <laughs> Southern Baptist crap in my head. Sure. Um, and um, I finally thought, okay, and I'm like 37 years old or something like that, right? I thought, okay, okay, I'm, I'm in. I believe it. I believe that I have been trying to find happiness, to feel good by, by filling myself with stuff people, degrees, success, sex, drugs, travel, money, better body. I don't friendships. I don't feel good stuff. Therapy, self-help, <laughs> self-affirmations. I am beautiful. I am lovely. Whatever. I mean, I've tried all the stuff society says, hence IQ, EQ stuff. IQ is data, facts, and stats. I've tried all the stuff of society. Data, facts, and stats. Here's information. I've had a lot of information. I've put them into practice. EQ. How do I feel about them? 
How am I going to behave? Actions I'll take. So, okay, Lord, I'm general. I'm I'm operating. I got data facts. I've got inf- and feelings and emotions, and I'm 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 working it out. I'm IQ EQing to death. And the reason why I wasn't quite there is I didn't have a GQ system. I didn't have a God system I believed in. I could anchor myself to. I could follow. That ultimately is the is the what undergirds everything anyway your belief system like a like a like a iceberg what you believe your thoughts your 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 actions your 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 data your facts is the tip of the iceberg the truth of everything about what you even determine is a fact about what you determine is a feeling that you want is based on what you believe it's your belief system that is the the, the heaviness of the iceberg is underneath the surface. And I didn't have a solid GQ system. I didn't have a God quotient. The happiness formula came, again, it still wasn't a book then. This was 2006, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008. As I began to explore this God quotient system, this belief system that I could anchor to, that had communities of people that had books and history and I began to figure out how could I take all of that and 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 put it into the equation of data facts and stats, IQ, intellectual quotient, things I can learn and know to my emotional quotient, my feelings and behaviors I can or won't take, right? What I'm going to do, what I'm not going to do, the EQ system, and then this GQ system. As I begin to work that formula, my happiness did increase, my joy, my peace, my calm, my maturity, my adulting, <laughs> my decision-making, um, the fruits of the spirit became my reality. Um, so I started walking better, behaving better, loving better, just being nicer <laughs> um, and enjoying the process more. And eventually it became a book. So a lot of story. That was that was a lot of story, and and I you, you just flow so well into it. So you've got this book, the the happiness formula, and that when you're talking about the an IQ uh, plus EQ plus GQ, that's that's all a part of this happiness formula that you've yeah. developed. Really, absolutely. There you go. Yeah. There you go. That's my book. Uh, available where? Well, you can go to CassandraVitaka.com, and you can go to thehappinessformulabook.com. Amazon. It's on Amazon. And so this this is uh, something that you've developed, obviously, over a huge life story. And, you know, as you were talking about cowering in the closet, and I didn't want to slow your roll on any of that, it just reminded me of what your childhood must have been like. And so you're five years old, you're cowering in a closet, you go through all of this stuff, you're in this genius programs, you go to Stanford University, and eventually end up cowering in a closet again mm. you know that that's kind of an interesting door to door on that sort of thing and as you talk about you a window kind of opened up for you a spirit window where you began having a conversation in your heart with whatever it was that was outside of you yeah that had no name, that had no gender, yeah. that had no, it was just a, what are you going to do, Cassandra? Yeah. What's, what's the next step? What, what, uh, 
where where do you walk from here? And that's such a that's such a a beautiful voice, a, a beautiful way of just sitting next to you. And you know, sometimes in therapy, the best thing that you can do for a client is just go so uh just talk. Yeah. You know, and just just work it out. Keep keep yeah. talking. And that's what that voice was. It was a voice that helped you begin to go. Okay, what's my path up? How's my what's my path out of this? And so yeah. you build this happiness formula, and you 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 speak about this. You go and 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 you do that sort of thing. So like, uh, talk a little bit more about the happiness formula. What what cre- helped you create it, and in what you do with it? Uh, yeah. So, <clears throat> got so much story. So I thank you for indulging my very long winded stories here. I didn't want to write a book. I wasn't cognizant of not wanting to write a book. How about that? Uh, um, We are in a culture, I pay attention a lot to sort of what is happening around me in culture and what are the masses accepting? What do people see as valid and, and credible? And I always find it fascinating how we add credibility to somebody because they wrote a book. It's like the easiest thing to do, by the way. <laughs> That's not fair. Don't That's tell not everybody. Fair. It's not easy to write a book. It's not fair. It's actually a lot of work. <laughs> and at the same time, it's not that difficult either, right? Like I, I can't explain it. It's not that difficult. Not, not in today's day and age, which is why everybody writes a freaking book. Um, because you can self-publish and do it. You don't even have to write a, you don't have, it doesn't have to be tangible. I guess you can do it all ebook or something. I don't know. Technology is not my thing. The reason I bring that up is because it's not that I wanted to write a book, but I, but I was given a truth. It came to a head, uh, June, July of 2018. I had gotten in the habit starting in 2010 of going on silent retreats, part of spiritual growth, part of, uh, people know this, going on a spirit journey, going on a solo, uh, silent journey, finding yourself the spirit walk, very much part of many cultures. It was part of my culture, the spirit walk, right? Um, and so meditation, uh, silent retreats are part of that meditative process, part of that spiritual process. So you can hear from this higher power. So on 2010, I, or actually starting in 2008, I figured out that silent retreats were necessary. So I started going on silent retreats. Uh, There's a place, a Jesuit retreat center. Uh, The Jesuits do this around the country. They have retreat centers. They're brilliant. Um, And I started going to this one retreat center and, and, in 2018, when, you know, now I'm at many years of doing this, I decide I'm, I'm struggling. What do I want to be when I grow up? So I'm still, what do I want to be when I, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I'm in the middle of leading, I'm in the middle of trying to transition out of my financial services career. I had gone into financial services, truth be told, because it was an easy way for me to make money. It is not an easy career. it's actually a horrible career. (laughs) I don't, I hate talking to people about their money. I cannot stand it because people don't want to hear the truth about how money really works. They don't want to hear the truth about how they need to manage their money. They just don't want to hear the truth. They want to believe the hype that you can get rich quick, quick. They want to believe the hype that they just want to believe the hype. And I, and I, I'm, I'm a wealth educator. I teach people how money really works 
how do you actually utilize the world of financial services? I was in the world of financial services. I got paid because I sold contracts called insurance and investments. I sold those to people. They bought them. I made money off that. Thank you very much. I made a lot of money off of this. I really appreciate it. But more than anything, um, I learned what I needed to for me. And how do you utilize formal contracts, insurance investment contracts, with things like a business, with things like real estate, with things like riskier types of endeavors, with saving? How do you just, how does all this work together? Money. So I went into the business because I was solving my problem. And then I could talk about it. I'm a teacher. I know how to educate people. And so it was easy for me to talk to people. I did very well, was very successful, really appreciate it, but I kind of hated it too, because people are exhausting um, and they won't do their own behaviors properly. The best analogy would be I'm a fitness professional for finances. Most people aren't healthy because they won't put in the work to be healthy, period. Hands down, unequivocally, there's no such thing as a fat freaking gene. Strike that from your brain. People, rare people are prone to being obese, rare. The majority of us are just not doing what it takes. We won't do the research to figure out what it takes to be healthy because it's a lot of freaking work to be healthy. But once you figure it out and you get the rhythm, it's actually the easiest way to live. <laughs> but again, same with money. It takes a lot of work to figure out how it really works. But once you figure it out, it's the easiest way to live. I mean, it's like a lot of things in life. It's hard if you don't know it, but once you know it, you wouldn't go back to the other way. So I'm in the world of financial services, want to get the hell out because I'm tired of talking to people and convince them to overcome their own BS, right? Money is not math, money is human behavior. And I was sick of trying to convince people to, to take care of their own life and stop blaming everybody else for why they're not wealthy and, you know, by tomorrow. Um, and so this is 2018, want to try to figure out what I want to be when I grow up go on a silent retreat, you know, trying to hear from God. I hear certain things come home in the process. I'm talking to my husband and sort of downloading what had happened. And literally, and I had been teaching, I had been speaking already. I'd already developed the, the, the coaching practice in my business, part of being in financial services, because I'm dealing with people, I'm learning a ton about them. And so I started, I developed a coaching practice. I developed a speaking practice and I was speaking on the happiness formula, the three elements I, I didn't call it God quotient. I didn't have that term yet. I'm, I don't even know what I called it, actually, to be honest with you. But I talked about this. I don't, the, the I probably, I don't, I'd have to go back and look at my presentations, what I called it, because it's been a while now. But I had, I had the, the, the data and facts. I had the emotions and actions, and I had the spirit, things of the spirit that I would teach on. And, and I would, you know, in corporate settings and all that kind of good stuff. Because again, that's part of an, an exercise to peace, joy, happiness. Um, so I'm talking to my husband about this and in the process, as we're dialoguing through, again, I had said IQ, I'd said EQ and he goes, you know, it's like a formula. He's like, it sounds like you're putting together. He's like, it's IQ plus EQ plus. And I'm like, yeah, what? He's like, I don't know. What is it? And I'm like, it's like, and he's like, and he goes, it's like something like the spirit, like it's some other quotient. And I'm like, God quotient. It's God quotient. It's the God. And so we're like, yeah. And he's like, IQ plus EQ plus GQ is what? I'm like, what is it? And I'm like, I don't know. What is it? So we're we're like going through words. And that's, it literally was born on a Sunday morning I or a Monday morning because we were dialoguing in the morning on a Monday. And that, it was, it was, um, so that was the day IQ plus EQ plus GQ is HQ. 
Um, I was like, I'd already had a, I had a marketing person who'd wanted me to write a book, a director. So I called her up. I said, Hey, I, I want to write a book. And she's like, Oh my God, how exciting. She had worked with the publisher before. She's like, let me put you in touch with the publisher. She put me in touch. And 40 days later, he worked me through some processes about how to go about writing the book. He had me do some exercises and stuff. But 40 days later from the, that phone call, I had 65,000 words. 65,000. My book has about 30,000 book words. It's 270 pages or about 30, 33-ish thousand words in there. So mind you, I have 65,000 words. And my book actually technically should be two different books. Um, so it's actually kind of long for the formula, for what it is. So you can get a sense of how how many words. But in 40 days, I had 65,000 words. And so that was, again, that was what happened in um, 2018 and put the book down because I knew I was supposed to write it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew I was supposed to put the information out there. I knew I didn't have any other vision for it. I didn't know what God was. I knew God was calling me to put it out there, but I didn't know exactly what. Again, I'd already been speaking on it. And so I'm like, okay, now that it's quantified and formalized, what do I do with this? And so I just began doing what I'd already been doing. I began talking about it more. I begin, I mean, I had a book now that I could sell and 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 get people to like read. And as I coached people, one of the things I would say is, you know, go to this chapter or go to that chapter. Um, because there's different chapters that have different and like there's a you know different ch chapter on money, chapter on marriage, chapter on even chapter on music. You know what I mean? There's a I talk about music makes merry. I mean, so it became a tool. It became a tool. And that's again back to I'm a teacher. I find information and I offer it to people. So really, this is just this is 30 years of information for all intents and purposes. If there's a lot of tools in here. And in particular, I tell people all the time. I promise you, I can help you find your answer. I don't know your answer, but if I walk you through, I can walk you through these ideas. You can walk yourself through once you kind of learn the rhythm of what they are and you will get to your answer for now. And that, I think people, that's another thing, for now. I, I, I didn't say I have the answer for you for the next 10, 20, 30 years, because none of us do. But I can get you off of dead center. I can the formula can help you get off dead center and start moving in a direction yeah. that is going to have a more positive that ball, the balls are going to start rolling in a better direction, right? It's that idea of having bumpers on your bowling lane. <laughs> the ball's going to start going down the middle more um, if you walk yourself to the formula. So that's what I begin to do with my people that would come to me for coaching, people that would hire me to speak to their groups, is just give people this tool. So yeah. I, I, I love this so much because we return back to you coming out of Stanford University, being very book smart and very life naive, if you will. And so really searching, really searching. And as you've been talking, I've been thinking about coaching because we're both coaches here. And I was thinking about this when I was walking my dog last night, all of the things that we seek coaches on mm. and we and and landscaping physical training, nutrition, addiction, business. We even have a coach. My wife and I were getting coached on the colors that we're going to use on the walls of our house. <laughs> and, and so we got this coach coming in. Oh no, you want a lighter color here because of this. It's going to cut the, the worm in half. And then we look at it and go, 
Oh yeah, I guess it would, wouldn't it? Because they're just having that specialization sitting next to you with things that you may not have thought of. Yes. And the ability, that powerful position where you as a coach sit next to somebody and go, consider this, consider this, consider this. Did you know that you do this? Do you know that you apologize for everything when you talk? You know, these these sorts of things that people do that sometimes they just need pointed out to them. I do. Yes. Yeah, I guess I do. I'm sorry. And so, <laughs> yeah, 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 right. <laughs> you know, and, and so... You, you know, the, the coaching that you do is about building. And you said the word strategy a couple of times in this conversation. You help people build values and strategy into their life to get them going in a productive direction, which yes. is exactly what coaching is supposed to be. Yeah. And why wouldn't we continually stop in for a coach once in a while in the same way that we talk about, well, I can't sleep at night. I think I need a therapist. That we we wouldn't also look at things in terms of, I feel kind of lost right now. I started going to church. It's great. Or, you know, going to wherever it is that you're going to get the spiritual enrichment and so forth. I feel like I just need some structure in my life. And so you you provide that for a lot of people in a very intensive sort of way. And you've been working with clients for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I guess, well, when I started my financial services practice was when it became clear that I was a coach. Like my whole career in corporate up to that point, I was always in that role or I was always working with executive teams in, so at, at, at private corporate entities, at uh, professional nonprofits, uh, sort of a trade association kind of nonprofits where I worked a lot um, at universities. So these kind of environments I'd been in, I'd always was in the C-suite working with the executive team, always in a role that was literally made up. <laughs> it's hilarious to me. I mean, sometimes it had titles. I mean, they, but really what they would do is they bring me on because they needed things. They needed sort of a um, an understanding of of where their company was going. I was a, a business coach in a lot of ways, but but more around the efficacy of people because people are the company. Um, people make the product, people make the, are the consultants that you send out to, you know, talk to people, they're the business. So, so how do we increase the efficacy of people, their, their peace, joy, happiness, and their productivity, and therefore the bottom line, so we can continue employing these people and continue, you know, making more money, et cetera. And so I was always kind of in that role where they would say, hey, we have X issue, can you address it? Hey, we have this issue. Can you address it? So it was always those kind of one-offs. It was, it was hilarious to me. I'm like, I swear, CEOs just make up their, they don't make it up, but they give it to Cassandra, give it to Cassandra. <laughs> Cassandra will take care of that. Um, so I'd always been in this role of how do you take a system, an economy, a, a business economy, a, a, an educational entity and work systems in their most uh, efficacious way? Mm -hmm. So then, then when that's what I did, and then I go into the personal, the personal money management. Now I'm looking at an individual who comes to me and says, okay, how do I take my economic entity of me and my wife or me and my family, whatever, or me, and how do I get the best use of that? Right. Because it wasn't just about their money. It was about their life. Right. Because money is not math. Money is human behavior. We make money, but we don't know what to do with it because we also don't know how to 
feel about it. We don't know what it means to us. We don't even aren't sure what our belief system is to know how to feel about it. Um, I can't tell you the amount of guilt that Christians would come about the fact that they were or were not tithing. I love that one. I'm always like, let me be real clear. The answer to how much money you give the Lord is 100%. When you can tithe 100%, then we can talk tithing. Otherwise, I don't want to hear it. I don't give a rip what your percentage is. It's 100%. Once you figure out how to adopt 100%, then we can have a conversation about what you're doing with the Lord's money. Um, because that's the truth. None of it's yours. You get the privilege of getting a dollar. What you do with that dollar, whatever you do with it is between you and God. So whether I'm eating it, burning it up, sticking in the fridge, giving it away, it's not my call. What do you want your life to look like? What are you doing with the dollar that he gave you? Once you recognize 100% of it as a Lord's, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, thank you for this gift of a dollar. What do I do with it? Bring that up because all of a sudden now I'm talking to people, I'm coaching them through, and they would talk, I'm their marriage counselor, I'm their health counselor, I'm their wealth. I mean, I literally was always called counselor, coach, right? That's what I began to get that title from people because again, I was trying to get them off dead center about looking at a dollar as my salary or what's my neck, what box could I put it in to be a millionaire tomorrow? I was trying to get them to understand it's a tool and how are you going to use this tool for everything else you want to achieve in your life? What are you going for in your life? And if you can't answer those questions, then you're never going to use the tool properly. You know, um, the analogy is my husband golfs. So I know a lot about golf now, even though I don't golf. Um, but if, but everybody knows a golf bag, right? Everybody understands the, the world. Most people, most people understand the basics of the world of golf. At least that there's a golf bag and you have different clubs and you hit different things and you're trying to get into a little hole. And, you know, whatever. We kind of get that. I can give you the best tools. I can give you custom designed golf clubs. I can I can uh, watch the way I can put you on a computer with metrics set up and I can watch how you swing and I can give you the best bag of tools. But if you do not know how to operate in that system, if you don't know the rules of the game, if you don't understand the dynamics of wind, if you don't understand your own body and how you show up that day, whether you got enough sleep or you didn't, I can't help you in the game. I can give you the best tools, but a lot of playing the game is you playing the game, putting in the work, doing the effort and recognizing sometimes, I don't know why, sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you hit a bunch of bogeys, sometimes you get a bunch of eagles. I don't know why sometimes from one day to the next, but it's recognizing that if you're doing the work, if you have the good tools and you're putting in the work, you'll probably eventually hit fewer bogeys and hit more eagles eventually over time. I didn't say you're going to be Tiger Woods, but you'll be better at what you're doing. And I think that's a lot of what I realized with co the coaching became because I was trying to get people to stop focusing on, is it an insurance bucket, an investment bucket, you know, low cap, mid cap, international goals. <laughs> stop focusing on the leaf. Let's look at what the forest, right? Stop focusing even on a tree. Let's look at the forest. And then we can talk about the tree and the leaf it produces or the fruit that's produced, right? So it's this kind of in and out. It's this micro macro, micro macro kind of stuff. If I can keep people focused on the macro, which is the happiness formula is a lot about the God quotient's a lot about macro, but there's also micro applications. That's kind of how it it's, continues to flourish, right? It continues to grow because of, and that's what I do. That's like what, and, and 
that's what I still do. I mean, so it doesn't matter whether I'm actually talking to somebody. It always ends up going back. I, I don't actually, I try not to say, I said the word happiness formula and, and talked about it more in this dialogue with you than I have in a long time. Because I try not to, I feel like I'm always trying to sell a book or sell my concept. I'm not trying to sell anything. I, I, I'm not. I, I'm. It's just dialogue. It's languaging to help people wrap their brain around it. Like, this is what I'm doing. What do I know? How do I feel? What actions can I take? Right. And then what does my God system say about it? And, you know, wh wherever you start is where you start, but all three play into each other, right? Nice. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, this is, when I work with people, one of the things I tell them all the time is you are going to have to put in, I'm going to give you tools and you're going to have to put in the work. And if you don't put in the work, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to, I have fired people. I have, because I'm like, you're too resistant. Mm. At some point you got to put in some work yeah. And when you put in the work and you keep putting it in, you're going to get results. It's just, you know, people yeah. fight you. So, yeah, ab absolutely. And this, this time that you've spent here, thank you so much for just an incredible life story and the way that you are walking forward into the world and being an ambassador of light and being one of the helpers, taking a story of challenge, struggle, and sorrow, and turning it into something that benefits people going in a direction where they're trying to find their way, because that's what we're kind of all supposed to be here for. Yeah. So just thank you so much for being yeah. on the Mindful Mutiny podcast. It's been fun. I mean, again, I hope it was I know I talk a lot, so I hope that this provided some benefit to you, but anybody who listens, absolutely, right? This is, a, we're, we're in this together. That's why I accept these kind of phone calls or accept these kind of invitations because I don't, I don't know who, I don't know what somebody's going to hear that's going to make a difference for them, yeah. but it is going to make a difference. And I think that's the thing too, if I can encourage anybody, I, this is, I say this all the time, you're always a good example always a good example. You're a good example of what to do, how to walk, how to talk, how to speak, how to live. Or you're a good example of what not to do, what not to say, what not to how to walk, <laughs> what not to actions to take. So you're always a good example, right? Most of us would rather be the example of what to do, right? We want right. to be some, most people I meet want to walk in the world of, I want to be something that my kids would emulate that my brothers and sisters around me would want to enter emulate that I would be to your put that light in the world. Well, yeah. you, that's, you're supposed to be, that's what God wants you to be as well. So how do you do that? Well, you're going to have to confront some things, right? You're going to have to walk through some things and recognize how you're personally uniquely designed to show up. How Cassandra shows up in the world is not how Jeremy should or is going to show up in the world. I'm not asking you to show up to look like me. I'm asking you to show up to look like you, there might be some overlap. There might be some exercises that I do and behaviors and disciplines that I do that make sense and perfectly match yours. And, and you can do those and they may not. And therefore you're gonna have to learn, figure out some other tools and techniques. So yes, I do hope that this has provided at least one yes. takeaway for somebody who listens. Oh, it, it absolutely has. And, and thank you so much. Uh, I'm Jeremy Van Wert, the CEO of High Altitude Mindset. Now go be something great.